0: Climbing Gold is a production of Duct Tape Then Beer. So welcome to Climbing Gold's coverage of the the Olympics. It's about to happen. We wish we could be in Tokyo to cover the games and obviously aren't for various reasons. Um, Alex is going to be commenting from home. What we wanted to do on season two is take a step back and cover some of the stories that will get missed in the breathless Olympic coverage of the competition. And, you know, you're going to hear a lot of glancing interviews with athletes. And the climbers competing in the games, they've been training for years to get to this point. And there's a lot of stories that surround that. And we were hoping to kind of dive deeper into that. Um, We've been talking to some of Team USA since they qualified more than a year and a half ago. In season one of Climbing Gold, we looked at how trends and individuals push the sport forward. And those trends are completely at play right now. But. We wanted to really look at some of the individuals and dive a little bit deeper because the individuals are the people that are giving it all right now. And this was just a cool story about a young climber with an incredible will to reach her full potential, despite not always having the infrastructure surrounding her that you might expect of a typical Olympian. Today, we talk with Kyra Condi.
1: I'm Alex Honnold.
0: I'm Fitzgerald
1: this is Climbing Gold.
0: All right, I know the Olympics are, are definitely still a few weeks out, uh, but have you even thought much about climbing beyond that?
2: I'm definitely going to retire from competitions one day, but it's also, I think why climbing is a lifelong sport because there's all these outdoor things that I could try and do, you know, like I've never climbed anything in Yosemite. So like, maybe I'll go do, try <laughs> and do like, something there. Actually, ironically, my mom has climbed Half Dome, but I have not ever been to Yosemite at all. So.
0: Wait, she, she hiked it or climbed it?
2: No, she climbed it. Really? Yeah, y- she did. Y- she did Snake Dyke.
0: Snake Dyke is a famous moderate five seven on Half Dome.
1: Really? When, when was that?
2: Uh, she did it a few years ago. Uh, and, uh, yeah, I, I, still haven't ever been. So I'm like, dang mom, like you're more of a pro climber than I am.
1: She, uh, she got into climbing after you did.
2: Yeah. So both my parents like to go to the gym now. Um,
1: <laughs> that's awesome.
2: Yeah. It's, it's pretty great. Um, but my mom's actually like really afraid of heights. Like I, I stopped letting her belay me as a kid because she would keep me too tight on the belay because <laughs> yeah, she would classic. get nervous
1: know, I, I took my mom up snake Dike, So, you know, that's what a that's what a good child does for their parent. Just just putting that out there.
2: Nice. <laughs> maybe, maybe one day I can uh, take my mom up it, but I don't think she's ever going to do it again.
0: <laughs> when did you start climbing?
2: Man, so I think I climbed a few times before I actually would say I became a climber, you know, and I just absolutely loved it and would beg my parents to take me to the climbing gym uh, for any days off that we had and stuff like that. And I think I, I remember just the first time walking in, just being completely in awe that there was a place where I was actually allowed to climb the walls. Because <laughs> I would use—I used to climb like our kitchen cabinets and the fridge and stuff like that at ha- at my home. And so um, having a place where I was actually supposed to do that was just total heaven for me.
0: <laughs> um, was it? A, I'm just totally curious. Was it like a birthday party that got you in the first time?
2: It actually was a birthday party that like really introduced me to the sport of climbing when i was like 10 which is hilarious i feel like a bunch of people who started kind of in that 2008 2009 time like that's how we got started was a birthday party
0: (laughs) totally it's funny i i just dawned on me of like how many climbing careers birthday parties have have launched it's probably quite a few did you ever to trade for climbing gym memberships did you ever like do the birthday party thing
1: Yeah, yeah, no. I mean, I I fully worked at my climbing gym for many years when I was a teenager, so I just belayed birthday parties every weekend. I mean, it was full-on, like, belaying, I mean, you know, I I could be misremembering because I was, you know, 15, but uh, I think each one was maybe two or three hours or something, and, you know, you do, like, three of them in a shift. (laughs) It's like, after belaying a bunch of kids who are screaming at you the whole time, you're like, oh, I hope the parents at least give me some of their pizza at the end.
0: How much of a bread and butter were birthday parties... For climbing gyms at that era, like it, like, they, I mean, it just seems like they were a huge thing.
1: Yeah, I don't know for sure, because nowadays in modern gyms, birthday parties definitely aren't the bulk of the income. I mean, it's, it's the recurring memberships that are the most important thing, but it does feel like back in the day, birthday parties and, and sort of group outings like Boy Scout troops and things like that were far more important because there just weren't as many regular members and, and the gyms just weren't quite as crowded so having the big groups come in on the weekends was was an important part of the business.
0: Kyra grew up in Minnesota. She started climbing at the gym Vertical Endeavors in St. Paul at age 11. And the minute she started climbing, she was totally hooked. The individuality of it and the competitiveness just clicked for her. Just you versus the wall.
2: I feel like I'm a really competitive person. And so um, like having something to compete for was definitely uh, inspiring to me. I, I tried team sports as a kid and they just didn't really suit me because I wasn't in control of the whole thing. You know, I, I could play soccer, but if I wasn't the one scoring every goal, you know, or like it wasn't entirely up to me whether or not we, we won or lost. And I think I didn't like that. Um, so I really kind of gravitated towards those uh, individual sports where it was entirely up to me whether or not I did well or didn't. Um, Cause then it's like, you know, either all the glory or uh, all of the, Disappointment was completely on myself, uh, which I've always really liked about climbing.
0: But as she describes herself, what she excels at best, maybe it's her climbing superpower, is recognizing that success or failures in climbing don't reflect on who she is. In other words, her performance or ability and her self-worth as a human are two separate things. And and that's not, as easy as that sounds, that's not something a lot of high-end climbers are necessarily always good at separating.
2: You know, climbing is mostly failure you know like at the gym you're not just sending every single thing that you get on same with outside you know the majority of a session is finding the wins in getting closer to doing a move you know sometimes it's not even successfully doing a move you know uh and so I think climbing really humbles you in that way where you really have to get used to kind of getting that beat down uh and that also I think suited my personality really well Um, I think if I fail at something it just makes me want to do better at it and learn how to do better Um, so I think some people, when they fail in climbing, take it really to heart and like turns into, you know, they failed as a person instead of just failed as a at that climb. Um, and I think I've always been really good at keeping those two things separate, where um, if I can't do something or don't do well enough at a competition, I try and learn from it and apply it to my training, figure out what I could do different and like uh, just go from there.
0: Pretty quickly, she started to have success. She started pushing her grades, succeeding in climbing competitions and standing out. But with that came some of the pretty ugly side effects. Toxic masculinity from the guys at the gym, who didn't like seeing the girls climb harder, coaches that didn't believe in her, shitty teenage rumors.
2: There actually was, I feel like, a moment where I, it's probably when I quit the team at the um, gym. I think I I had heard somebody had said something about where my in, like, motivation came from. And it was, it was like a telephone effect, you know, and I was all offended by it. <laughs> and I think that's really what, like, made me quit the team and like realize that you know there wasn't people who were necessarily behind me in the way that i needed and that i could do it better myself i guess so at least how i pictured it (laughs) and um yeah that was kind of i think the moment when i really took it into my own hands to like start training and take things seriously and not really care what other people thought about it
0: was it that your goals were too big for that team in minneapolis like why did they laugh at you
2: I think I've always been a really confident and like self-assured person. And, uh, that can be kind of off-putting if, if you're not, um, especially if you're a 13 year old girl in a gym full of a bunch of dudes. <laughs> so I think that's kind of why that was the case. Uh, like I just, uh, didn't really fit in.
0: So Kyra did her own thing, started climbing on her own, left her coaches and the team taking the training seriously, more seriously than ever than the coaches did and keeping a lower profile but still succeeding in competitions. Did you train yourself like when you were, you obviously had been on the team when you were a kid and then you left the team and you kind of did your own thing. Um, it sounded like you competed some, but did you, as a teenager, did you train? Well, it's hard to say. So it's
1: it's hard to say that I trained as a teenager or, or even as a young climber in general because the idea of training for climbing was just so different at that time. Um, Through my later teenage years, I did a lot of pull-ups. I had a a pull-up bar in my doorframe at home. So I was doing 150 pull-ups before bed every night in like sets of 30 basically. Um, So I got really good at doing pull-ups. But that's not really training for climbing because it turns out that doesn't actually help you climb that much better. Uh, Though it did get me really good at doing pull-ups. You know, so basically I never really trained for climbing in a systematic way. But I did read all the books about how to climb. You know, like how to climb 512 and, you know, The Rock Warrior's Way and all these these books – sort of built around training for climbing. So I wanted to be a good climber and I was trying my hardest, but that basically meant biking to the gym, climbing as much as I could till I was exhausted, biking home, doing a bunch of pull-ups until I was exhausted and then doing it again the next day, basically day in and day out through, you know, my entire high school tenure. And so, you know, I mean, it's hard to call that training in any real way, but I was certainly doing a ton of exercise. Yeah. It's
0: it's kind of funny in a way. That's the climber you became though.
1: I know I know that's it's such a chicken-and-the-egg thing it's like Have I always favored volume because I love doing volume or did I wind up loving volume as a climber because that's all I was doing when I was young You know also part of it was that the layout of my gym was this crazy honeycomb pattern and I would do I would put on headphones and basically traverse the base of the wall along this like honeycomb thing You could go over these little arches and through these rooms and basically make circles uh, for hours and so you know, I would occasionally get on the wall and basically not touch the ground again for an hour and a half or two hours. And, you know, and as it turns out, I love doing long things like that now. And you're kind of like, was I always that way? Or is it just because it, it was ingrained because of the place I grew up climbing?
3: Yeah.
0: After the break, spray walls, spinal fusions, and spotting your weaknesses.
1: I've been a North Face athlete for almost 18 years, which has been incredible, and I've always appreciated their commitment to exploration. Summit Series is the name of the pinnacle North Face products that I use on every expedition, and I love that their tagline is athlete tested and expedition proven. I've personally tested these products all over the world, and they've always proven themselves. Future Fleece is the next generation base layer that I wear almost every day of climbing outside, whether on the wall or at the crag. You can shop the full Summit Series collection at Northface.com. I first found Chorus when I was looking for a GPS watch that could track my biggest outdoor adventures. I needed something with a massive battery life that was also robust enough to handle the climbing. As it turns out, Coros is the only GPS watch brand that has done some serious development for climbers, from multi pitch GPS tracking to indoor programmed workouts. The watches have a mind blowing battery life. The Vertex watch series lasts for more than 100 hours in GPS activities, so I only need to charge it once every several weeks. <laughs> I only need to charge my watch so sporadically that I can never find the charger because I haven't used it in six weeks. <laughs> if you're interested in bringing new technology into your climbing training and tracking, you should consider their new Vertex 2S. Go to koros.com and use the code Gold to secure a free watch carabiner with the purchase of your new Vertex 2S.
0: In her early teenage years, Kyra's spine started to twist and contort in odd ways. There was back pain, then doctors visited. Eventually, the diagnosis came in severe idiopathic scoliosis.
2: So basically, when I hit my growth spurt, instead of growing normally, my spine just bent. And so I had an S curve that was 72 degrees at the worst spot. And that was right in the middle in my thoracic spine. Uh, And so it was already past the point of being able to wear a brace. And um, I needed to get. 10 vertebrae fused so t2 through t12 are basically one bone now in my back and i still have like the metal hardware in it um and that basically is, you can't bend there at all uh, or twist um so the only bending that i get out of my back is from my c vertebrae which is like your neck and then the l vertebrae which is the lower back
1: neither of us even know what to do with that because we're both like oh geez like that's <laughs> that's hard <laughs> like, that's, that's just tough but
2: yeah it's kind of crazy so i still have a 25 degree curve um and like get some chronic back pain, uh, but it's a lot better than it was, so.
0: It's kind of incredible to think about that, that you have guided yourself to this moment, um, you know, through one, having uh, that, that condition that had to be treated with the, the fusion of your spine. Um, and two, just also, you know, ha- being in a situation where you were kind of having to figure out how to train yourself on your own. I'm curious, like, how you did that? Like, how does a 12 year old like, what book did you open to be like, oh, this is how I'm going to get strong and, and like vanquish the competition? Like, how did you do that? Like, how does a 12 year old go about that? Cause like, I sure as hell was not doing that at 12. Maybe Alex was, but like, I was, yeah, I was like playing Nintendo. So, yeah.
2: Man, I think I've, I've never been liked being told that I can't do something. Um, and I think that's just like really like integral into my personality. Like, it's, uh, yeah. So I, the very first surgeon I went to told me that I was going to take nine months off climbing, maybe would never climb again, uh, would have a family one day and that I wouldn't care about sports. And that like immediately did not sit well with me. And I was like, I'm absolutely not going to see this doctor. Um, even at like, you know, 12 years old, I was like, mom, we can't go to this doctor, even though he's at a really renowned hospital. Like I don't want to go here. Um, so we found a different doctor who was really supportive of climbing and told me to send him a picture when I was on top of the podium. Uh, and so I was like, okay, I like this guy. Uh, <laughs> like, let's go with him. And, you know, I'm lucky enough that my parents took my opinion into account there. Uh, cause, um, I get made a huge difference.
0: Four and a half months after having her spine fused, she was climbing again. Year in and year out. She kept climbing, usually alone, headphones in, head down through high school into college.
2: Yeah, it's, it's actually really crazy for me because when I was in Minnesota for the last five years, like all the way through my time in the university of Minnesota and stuff, I was basically climbing completely alone, like midday alone in a warehouse on the spray wall.
0: Kyrie said that the doctor that told her to give up climbing kept her motivated.
2: You know, having kind of that, like somebody telling me like, you don't need to care about this. I don't know, ignited the, the want to, to prove him wrong. <laughs> so uh, I guess as as shitty of a thing that was to say to a 12 year old girl, like, uh, it also really, um, motivated me, I think. Uh, and I think also just having this thing to overcome brings a lot of motivation. I think a lot of people find success really early and, um, are just winning everything right away and you don't know anything different. And so instead I was like getting, you know, 10th at nationals getting third at regionals. Um, so I wasn't always winning. And then I, on top of that, I had this back surgery that set me back and I just like had a lot of things that I wanted to accomplish and, having never accomplished them, I think that motivation was just really high. Uh, And so I've always, like, I've never hit a lull in my climbing where I wasn't psyched to go to the gym or wasn't psyched to do something. I've basically been perma-psyched since my back surgery. (laughs) I think it came at a really good time.
1: It's interesting you say that by not winning competitions, you were more more motivated to push yourself and improve because uh, I had the same experience where I wasn't winning competitions and, and I went the other direction where I just went outdoors and just went adventuring <laughs> in the hills and went hiking a bunch and like, you know, w- went and had crazy experiences and uh, just sort of left the indoor climbing behind because I was like, you know what, I'm just not very good at this. <laughs> but, um, you know, I guess the question there, though, is is you know, like what has kept you motivated to grind at something for so many years to to basically see steady improvement over a decade?
2: I mean, I think I just really love the feeling of um, working hard at something and then accomplishing it. So I think the motivation comes from just there's always something you can get better at in climbing. And I just really enjoy that feeling of being bad at something. And then, you know, just like brute forcing it into (laughs) being a strength eventually.
1: A a, a friend of mine, uh, a friend of mine in Vegas has a little theory that he calls the pain box where he's, he says that you have a set amount of pain in your life and it's the pain of sucking versus the pain of hard work and all you have is a little partition that you can slide back and forth so you know no matter what you're going to have a fixed amount of pain in your life but you can just slide that partition back and forth so have less less pain from sucking and more pain from hard work you're, you're describing uh, that y- you've always appreciated the more pain from hard work
2: totally i mean i actually really relate to that i have a tattoo that says you suck try harder um <laughs> which was written above my gym that i uh that I climbed at in Minnesota and was also written in the gym that I started at. Uh, so I, I think, yeah, I, I definitely really relate to that, that feeling. <laughs> and I don't actually think I suck. Like, I think that's the, the misconception with this tattoo.
0: <laughs> By the time Kyra finished college at the University of Minnesota in 2018, she was climbing at an elite international level. She decided to move to Salt Lake City and try having a coach again.
2: Uh, and I didn't even have a coach from like age 15 through age 22, whenever I moved here. Um, and so just having somebody who's completely dedicated to your success is just a good feeling. I just didn't have that growing up in climbing. Um, and so that just takes a lot of pressure off of myself. Like I was always having to provide myself with that uh, motivation and that, um, you know, affirmation, I guess. And so having somebody else to provide some of that uh, is huge and just takes off that stress. Um, but then also, yeah, just, just working with the coach in general. And Josh has definitely been tweaking what he does and perfecting it. He sets for us. He, um, you know, points circuits does really all of it. Keeps us motivated. Um, and it's made a huge difference. I actually think that's like he and Meg Coin. she's our other coach and our PT Zach DiCristino, all of them have had a huge, um, they, like they are completely why we have four um, athletes qualified, I think because um, of their dedication to the team and um, how much they cared and, everything that they did in the last like two years
0: we went and talked to usa climbing's assistant coach meg coin who gave the credit right back to kyra
3: one thing i respect like hugely from kyra and you don't always see it because a lot of what she does is on her own right but she is the hardest worker i've ever met in my whole life she tries so hard and when like if kyra says like i'm having trouble with motivation it's kind of like oh because that girl works. But I think that's a holdover from doing it all on her own for so long. Like she, her work ethic is what has gotten her this far. She really perseveres. Here's Kyra again.
2: Like that was one of the hardest parts of going from not having coaches to having coaches, was like just really trusting that they were behind me and that um, like, like just letting somebody else come up with those plans was just really hard because I had done it for so long.
0: Assistant coach Coyne also added.
2: Yeah. And she's an interesting one too. Like a lot of what she's
3: doing now is all the stuff she really didn't have the opportunity or the help for before, like a lot of mental training. Like she'll talk about working with the sports psych and working with Josh and like having these new mental strategies. Whereas before, most of what she did was get stronger and fitter and all these things. And having the training center has been great because- working on weaknesses in front of a bunch of people, a lot of whom are better at those things than you is really hard. And especially like, you know, having a space where you can do, it's not a, not a commercial gym.
2: I actually started working with a sports psychologist and she made a huge difference in just my mindset in general during competitions. And the main thing was a lot of times I'd be thinking about something else while I was climbing. So, you know, if you're in the middle of the competition league climb and you're thinking about how hard the section after the section you're on is going to be, you're not gonna be focused enough on the section that you're doing that you're gonna make a mistake. So it's kind of this idea of present focus of being in the moment and climbing exactly what's in front of you. And this can be like applied to kind of all aspects of life really, Um, and having this present focus and whatever outcome comes. But if you are present focused enough, then ideally the the outcome that you want is the one that's gonna happen, you know, like you'll climb better. Uh, if you have that focus on what you're doing rather than thinking of what the outcome will be. So I guess even though those those negative failure thoughts definitely came through my mind, like, oh, what if I slip right here or something like that? Uh, you just kind of push them away, don't let them happen and replace them with a with a better thought. So if I pictured myself false starting and speed climbing, like because your brain just will do that sometimes, you know, like what if I false start? Um, then I would also then picture myself getting a PR and uh, that's the one I would focus on of the two things.
0: After the break, Kyra tells us her goals for the Olympics.
3: Kind of.
1: Element is a zero-sugar electrolyte drink mix formulated with a science-backed ratio of sodium to potassium to magnesium. Each packet delivers a meaningful dose of electrolytes free of sugar, artificial colors, or other dodgy ingredients. It tastes great, and I've used it extensively on expeditions. Element is formulated for anyone looking to restore health through hydration and is perfectly suited for athletes, folks who are fasting, or those following keto, low-carb, whole food, or paleo diets. Try Element totally risk-free. If you don't like it, they'll refund your order, no questions asked. So whether you're new or returning Element customer, you can get a free Element sample pack with any drink mix order, when you go to drinkelement.com slash climbinggold. That's drinklmnt.com slash climbinggold. Dr. Squatch crafts natural, high-performance personal care products with no harmful ingredients. I don't shower often, but when I do, I use Dr. Squatch. I especially like the Summer Citrus Bar Soap. From soap to shampoo to conditioner, they help me look, feel, and smell my best for whatever adventure I go on. They're offering listeners 20% off any purchase for new customers with the code CLIMBINGGOLD. GOLD, or you can go to drsquatch.comslash Honald. Dr. Squatch, get dirty, stay clean.
0: Effectively, what Kyra found in Salt Lake City was a safe place to grow as a climber both physically and mentally, along with a team of coaches with their best interests in mind and for the first time, a supportive community of other female climbers. It really felt like USA Climbing had a team. We'll get more into that later on in another episode.
2: And so coming here and having a, like a huge like, female scene has actually been crazy. Like, uh, everybody who trains in the, most of the people who train in the training center are girls, actually. Uh, there's actually a, a bigger guy crew here as well. Um, but I think that's been huge. Like just having strong girls to climb with has been crazy to me. It's just like kind of mind blowing. I've never had that in my whole, whole life.
1: How do you uh, train the different disciplines? I'm basically curious how much you emphasized working on your own weaknesses versus, you know, catering to your strengths. Like basically how do you choose what you train? I mean, with a combined format, uh, you know, what do you focus on?
2: Yeah, honestly, it's super hard, like training three disciplines and trying to peak in all three disciplines at once is really difficult. Um, basically my strategy, (laughs) I guess, is that, uh, bouldering relates to both the best. It's like, you know, speed is really powerful and bouldering is really powerful as well. And then, um, lead the stronger you are at bouldering, the better you'll be at lead just because the moves will feel easier. Um, whereas if I was like only lead climbing, I would lose all my power and not be able to speed climb at all. So that's kind of the approach I've gone to is most of my days climbing. I'm always doing some bouldering. And uh, I supplement with lead and speed. So some days I'll do speed and bouldering, some days I'll do lead and bouldering.
1: I mean, that, that, that's interesting. That does make sense physiologically, but that's also, I mean, by nature, you're a better boulder, right? So you are, you is you know, it one of those classic things where you're like, well, I just train the thing that I like the most, <laughs> you're
0: sort of like, oh, that, that always seems like a dangerous path. You know, I think one of the hardest things about improving climbing is like training the weaknesses. That is like a hard thing to do. Like, uh, and I know, I mean, I don't know. Have you ever struggled with that? I'd be like, God, I suck at this. No,
1: totally. I mean, I think that's one of the hardest things in climbing is that you only improve by training your weaknesses, yet it's oftentimes very hard to see your own weaknesses. And most people prefer to train their strengths because that's what they like to train anyway. And it's funny how many climbers, you know, think that that their weaknesses are actually, or think that their strengths are actually their weaknesses. You know, it's like, this counterintuitive thing where people with really strong fingers are like, oh, if I just had stronger fingers, I'd be able to do this. And you're like, no, your fingers are already freakishly strong. You really should be working on other aspects of your climbing. I mean, that's actually, I mean, that yeah, that's the interesting thing with climbing in general is that, you know, you only improve overall by by training your weaknesses, but occasionally you want to just double down on your strengths and just do something that you can be proud of, you know, because
0: you're uniquely good at that thing. You officially qualified in 2019 in Toulouse, France. What do you remember about that moment?
2: I don't think I slept more than three hours that entire week because <laughs> I just kept like picturing how it could go. And you know, I pictured everything from slipping on the first move of the lead climb uh, to topping the lead climb and qualifying. You know, So I had all these different emotions about it. And so when it actually happened, it almost felt like it had already happened because I had imagined it happening so many times. Uh, so it happened almost exactly how I... it would with um like i was like i'd probably cry i'd probably hug my parents somebody will get a photo of it and i'm going to post this with this caption on instagram if it happens and that is almost exactly how it went down (laughs) like i started sobbing and my parents came over and hugged me and my friend dan got a photo of it and that's what i posted to instagram and so like it was pretty surreal in that way
0: um you're a few months out from tokyo what like are you allowing yourself to 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 look forward to that obviously earlier you were talking about how when you qualified you'd run that through your mind like hundreds of times beforehand like you'd already you knew what you were going to post to Instagram are you allowing yourself to think towards Tokyo um or is it just sort of like staying present in the training right now and and if you are what are you looking forward to and and what are you imagining like those different sort of outcomes what do you see in Tokyo
2: Yeah. Oh man. Uh, I've, I've actually been trying to keep this kind of a secret, you know, like telling what your goals are. Like I know Adam refused to say who he thinks will be, uh, you know, the podium at Tokyo, you know,
0: she's talking about Adam Andra, who many people consider to be the best climber in the world, but not necessarily the favorite in the Olympics.
2: And I kind of haven't let myself tell anybody that either, like who I think will podium or what my goals are. Um, not really for any particular reason. I think partially because, uh, I haven't fully decided what my goals are. Uh, I definitely have them. Uh and I'm working towards them, but I don't know if I fully have grasped that I'm like making goals for my performance at the Olympics yet, still, even though I've had a ridiculously long time now <laughs> to to think about it. Um, but I I think I've finally gotten to the point where I'm like sure the Olympics are happening, uh sure I'm going to be there and uh have started like really thinking about what I'm going to do. Uh, to make those goals happen I guess if that makes sense
0: are you ready to share them or
2: <laughs> well I mean obviously you know the biggest goal anybody <laughs> has when they go to the Olympics is to get a medal you know uh, and I think I think we we have a good shot at having somebody from the U.S. get a medal uh, and you know I'd like it to be me obviously
1: <laughs> now that you've had the first sort of global competitions in the, in the last year uh, you know where where are all the other women like how, how does everybody look like how has the year been for everybody else
2: um, I mean, I think everybody has been able to t- like step up their training in the last year. Um, it's really hard to say because because of the combined format. Like, we're, like the last competition was only a, a bouldering World Cup. And so, you know, you have no idea where people's speed times are at or, um, you know, how their lead climbing is or if their bouldering is suffering because they've been lead climbing and speed climbing, things like that. Because um, I feel like I'm not in my best p- peak bouldering shape because I have been doing like a bunch of lead and speed. Um, mm-hmm. So like, I know that's like part of it. And also we're trying to peak for the Olympics. We're not trying to peak for these world cups.
1: I know that that's the fun thing about for the rest of us who are spectators. That's the fun thing about watching the competition season. Cause you know, you want to read into it, but you know, but you kind of can't because you have no idea where people are on their own personal training cycle and whether or not they're taking the competition that seriously or not, or whether they're just using it to build skills. It's like, I don't know. Yes. Yeah, it's, it's, it's fun as a spectator.
2: Yeah, exactly. And, uh, that's something like, as far as my expectations for the event, like, I had to go in there being like, okay, I know I'm I'm training for the combined. Like, I haven't been training for this World Cup, um, like, specifically. So uh, keeping that in mind to keep expectations and stuff in check was important.
0: We did this interview with Kyra a few months ago. And in just a few short days, we'll see how Kyra does in Tokyo. And I think it's pretty impressive that she's even there. I mean... Yes, there is the spinal fusion. But even more importantly so, to put it in context, is Kyra, she did this on her own terms, inside of her own system that she built as a young teenager. And that is pretty damn impressive. Because I think about where I was at 13, right? And I mean, imagine yourself at 13 and saying to yourself, I am going to be able to teach myself, to train myself, to find the willpower to compete at the highest level. And have that come from within, that determination, it's pretty damn incredible. Do you think that we will see sort of self-trained, self-taught, uh, self-realized climbers in the future in the Olympics? Or is Kyra, Kyra maybe like the, the last of that era?
1: I think it's very possible that Kyra could be one of the last self-trained climbers that we see in the Olympics. The Level of the national teams is just steadily rising. I mean, particularly with climbing being in the Olympics now, I feel like every national team is is sort of upping its game uh, because you know of the influx of of attention that comes from the Olympics. So yeah, I mean, it's hard to imagine. I don't know. I mean, yeah, currently there might still be some climbers out there who are sort of self-coached and and self-driven, but I think their numbers will be shrinking as climbing gets more serious.
0: Thanks Kyra for chatting with us and sharing your story. We wish you great success in Tokyo. Climbing Gold is a production of Duct Tape Than Beer. Alex Honnold is our host. The episode was written and edited by Andrew Burton. Additional editing and mixing by Cordelia Zars. Editorial direction by me, Fitz Cahal. Our senior producer is Elizabeth Nakano. Our producer is John Bergman. Music today by Brendan O'Connell. Art direction by Anya Miller. Our executive producers are Becca Cahal and Lisey Hendricks for Duct Tape Than Beer and Jonathan Redzik and Ben Andy for RxR
3: Sports. Thanks for listening to Climbing Gold.